One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. It's Wednesday, July the 26th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. The dog days are nearly upon us, but there's still a flicker of life in the Irish body politic as we head towards August. And this is also always a time for some reflection on where we're at and where we're going. With me in studio, our political editor, Pat Leahy. Pat, the Cabinet is having its last meeting of the summer today. Yeah, the Cabinet uh, takes a break for August. I'm not uh, sure whether they have yet decided whether their next meeting will be in the last week of August or the first week in September. But either way, uh, today's uh, today's meeting will be the last time that ministers meet as a collective authority um, for a number of weeks. So pretty busy agenda, though... Uh, light on substance, I'm given to understand. So how, lots how, of how, do, how do those reports. two facts reconcile each other? How can we because you have light on substance? Uh, because you'll have an awful lot of uh, annual reports and so forth that um, pretty much fly through cabinet as a uh, as a formal pro forma exercise okay. uh, rather than be the cause for any substantive discussion or any substantial decision making. Uh, the Minister for Finance uh, and uh, for Public Expenditure, Pascal Donoghue, is not there today. He's already on his holidays uh, for a couple of weeks, I'm told. So, which means um, uh, there will not be anything uh, budgetary related that is decided today. Anything that involves uh, any policy decisions that involve a cost on the Exchequer won't be done without the Minister of Finance. So would I be uh, right in saying then that Pascal Donoghue's taken his holidays a little bit earlier in order to get back a bit earlier because Pascal Donoghue's new expanded job really kicks in when he gets back, I presume, in the middle of August and starts working towards the estimates and the budget. That's right. once the the uh, the budget, the date of the budget, as as people may recall, was brought forward um, to comply with European regulations a couple of years ago, whereas it used to be uh, at the end of December, which gave uh, the months of September, October, November for the governing apparatus of civil service and so forth, and all the interest groups to feed into the budget that took place in December. Now that's a lot more truncated, that process. So very much when uh, people come back from their holidays, ministers come back, in September, at the end of August, uh, the construction and agreement of the budget will dominate uh, the, 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 the affairs of government. Although that is not something we will see in in, in public, really, but it will very much dominate can, can, the... Can you uh, clarify something for me? Because I seem to remember about this time last year, um, there was a lot of talk about how new systems had been set up. There was a general political acceptance that the budget process needed to be reformed, needed to be opened to the uh, the, the healthy glare of sunlight more. The Oireachtas needed to be more involved. Uh, everybody should know a bit more in advance and have an open debate about what was going to happen, but that the systems were not in place last year, but we could expect to see that in years to come. There's no sign that at all. That, has, that hasn't happened in the terms that it was suggested. So one of the pillars of that new empowered 
parliamentary involvement in the budget process was the Oireachtas Budget Scrutiny Committee, which was set up, uh, which was set up last year, beginning of last summer, which met a number of times, uh, a number of uh, a number of meetings uh, I attended, and at every meeting, um, members of the committee and its chairman, who at that stage was John Paul Phelan, would say. You know, we're we're kind of shadow boxing at the uh, at the moment, but next year we expect uh, to be able to pay a fuller part in the budget process. And part of an essential element of that was to have a new Eroctus Office of Budget Scrutiny that would be resourced to enable TDs to cost measures to test. Uh, yeah, to test policy proposals against great. one another, um, but uh, I'm afraid that hasn't been set up. Uh, owned the director of the office has only recently been appointed, and therefore the office is not up and running. Why? Because these things tend to happen a lot more slowly, particularly. And my own suspicion uh, is that the officials in the Department of Finance, Department of Public Expenditure, would prefer to be doing this job themselves than have. TDs do it. So the natural them. resistance of what uh, of what some people in the United States would call the deep state has kind of slowed this all down. Yeah, I think, you know, that sort of innate conservatism is not, especially with regard to budgetary matters, is not particular, not unusual in the Irish state, but it is uh, uh, it, it, probably a feature of all bureaucracies, but it's certainly in evidence here. And I suppose there's also you know, maybe been a bit of reluctance and tardiness on the part of Parliament itself, on, on, on TDs itself, to push for that responsibility because, you know, maybe op- some opposition TDs at least are as happy with denouncing budgetary choices uh, rather than having those choices possibly being and responsible taking responsibility for yeah. those choices themselves because ultimately... The construction of, a bu- of, of, of budgets involves choices on where to spend and where not to spend, where to tax, where not to tax. And, you know, however you cut that particular cake, there are some people who will be left less happy than others about it. Now and this, the, whole, the whole business of where to spend and what to spend and how to spend and what to spend it on um, was the subject of considerable debate. Uh, this is the time of year for these kinds of debates. And you were up at the up at the McGill Summer School. Um, I, we were talking last week to, um, to Mary Minahan about the, the looming, ominous, increasingly ominous grey cloud of Brexit. And I know that that took up a lot of time. But also... These questions now, as Ireland has definitively emerged from recession and seems to be on a on a continuous growth path of what should be done um, with the money or what should be done, what what, what problems should be addressed? Yeah, I I, um, I attended uh, in Glenties for a couple of days uh, last week, as you uh, as you'll be aware, and I, I suppose they were the two. While there was a number of topics discussed in various sessions, as there always is, the two overarching subjects that surfaced in almost every paper and certainly in many of the kind of discussions on the margins were Brexit and the implications of Brexit and the the apparently hardening uh, uh, Brexit that, that we see approaching. And which is, of course, in Donegal, a border county, uh, an issue that is, you know, very real for uh, for an awful lot of people on the ground there. And uh, the economic choices that face Ireland now. And I was particularly struck by a paper delivered by uh, the UCC economist Seamus Coffey, who is, of course, the chair of the government's fiscal council, which is a sort of budget watchdog and which last year described the budget in its 
post-budget report described the government's budget as beyond the limits of prudence. But um, for all that, uh, for all the attention that was uh, that was taken of that in Marion Street. But um, I, I, I was struck by Seamus's paper because he went back over the history of the crash and the period before the crash and drew a number of parallels between where we were before the crash and where we are now. And, and the message... Of, yeah, I mean, I read that. I wasn't there, but I read the paper. It's interesting, just for the benefit of our, our listeners who haven't read it. Um, he, he focuses on the period right at the end of the 1990s, really. So he's not talking about the so much, I think, about the, the 2006, 2007 crazy yeah. bubble time. He's talking about the point at which everything was steaming along very well and very nicely uh, and the decisions that were made at that point, at the end of the 90s. That's correct. And I, I imagine you're right. There, there may be some of our listeners who haven't read his uh, paper, though I'm sure they can find it on the McGill uh, website. But the, the, the most pungent part of it, I think, um, for, to, to my ears at least, was his suggestion or his description of the place where we are now as being analogous to that period before the crash where, uh, I, I suppose, what, what he was saying, I think, is that we are not yet at the point where we have made the mistakes, but we're at the point where we were just before we made the mistakes previously, hmm. and which subsequently, a number of years afterwards, exacerbated the effects of the international crash. These are the points where it's, it's generally, it's, it's generally accepted, or it's, it's kind of a truism among economists, I think, that certain decisions were taken. Not all of them, uh, to be fair, in Dublin. They had to do with things like the introduction of the euro and the freer movement of capital and, and things, but that the the phenomenon of economic recovery, which Ireland saw in the 90s, started becoming a different kind of a beast as we got into the, the, the first decade of, of, of this century and started to be more based upon credit fueled expansion, property speculation and all those other bad things. Yeah, uh, I, I think so. And he was talking about the health of the, the economy now, the dangers for the government in adding you know, adding fuel to a strongly growing economy, notwithstanding all the uh, evidence out there that there are, is investment needed in certain areas. There's housing shortages. There's, as we've seen in uh, in Drada in the northeast this week, there's uh, you know infrastructure deficits in uh, in in many areas, not just in uh, in water services. And uh, and he was you know pointing out that these if approached in reckless ways or short-termist ways uh, can end up causing us much worse problems uh, down down the line. And now, he wasn't saying that there is no solution to these problems or that there is a perfect solution to these problems. He was merely pointing out that with some of these apparently simple solutions, such as build more houses, there are difficulties and 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 problems and actions that may have unforeseen uh, unfortunate see, consequences what down I, what, the line. What I, what I wonder about that is that I'm sure that's all very valid and that macroeconomic analysis of what happens when you pump money into the economy that it has a bunch of consequences, some of them perhaps unintended, but we've seen what those consequences could be in the past. But the counter argument, I suppose, is there are clearly things that need to be done. 
So how can we do them? Or do we just not invest in housing when people don't have homes? Do we not invest in water infrastructure and road infrastructure where it's clearly needed in various parts of the country? What's the solution to that? Do we have to wait for a recession and then spend our rainy day fund? Then? Well, I mean, Seamus wasn't offering a 10-point 10 uh, 10 plan to uh, to national nirvana that, um, you know, because, you know, obviously such a thing doesn't exist. But uh, But he was pointing out that we need to be careful at this point in terms of how we invest, how we plan for the future, how we spend the money, do we and, and and to make sure that we spend it in sustainable ways that don't end up causing us difficulties down the future, or at least, if you know, I suppose you know, to step back from it, at least that we might make different mistakes now, but rather think, than but rather I, than but repeating the same mistakes. I think what saying, and correct mistakes. me if I'm wrong, is that what he's saying is even the things that are that are generally deemed to be quite virtuous in terms of public spending, i.e. you get a return on them and you're not just flushing money down the toilet. So investing in infrastructure, which then has a benefit that lasts for decades or generations afterwards because the road is still there, as opposed to uh, putting money into inflated salaries for public servants or hiring people who don't need to be hired and that's an ongoing cost. But he's even saying things like, for example, his analysis of of the consequences of what might happen with investment in housing are, you know, quite yes, bleak yeah. Well, he's pointing ways, out that you know? in, the, um, in, in the past, you know, hundreds of thousands of immigrant, uh, many immigrant workers came to build those houses. They had to be housed somewhere. The price of houses went up, the price of, and, 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 and we, we saw what happened. Uh, we saw what happened with that. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, as I say, he wasn't sketching out a trouble-free path to the future no matter what happens. But he, what he was doing was warning of the nature or the, the, the dangers of unsustainable increases in spending um, which are taken for short-term, uh, which, are, which, which are taken to solve sh- uh, short-term problems. Now, you know, when that transfers to the political realm... Or the real world, as some might call it. Then, of course, politicians who make these decisions will have to be wary of, uh, you know, they're wary as much of the imperatives of imperatives of politics as they are of the warnings of economics. And that is the difficult tightrope that Pascal Donoghue and his colleagues have to walk when they construct this budget, but also when they construct their 10-year uh, capital plan, which will be launched and, after, after and the budget. What, what's your read on how Pascal Donoghue will approach that particular conundrum? I think that's something that will become apparent, that will only become apparent when he when he does the budget. Pascal Donahue finds himself in the position of being, I think, the most powerful finance minister since Charlie McCreevy in his pomp with significant resources at his uh, disposal um, with significant power across government because, of course, while the two departments of public expenditure and finance remain separate, he is now head of uh, head of both. So he has the power across government over spending that was that it resides in the Department of Public Public Expenditure, but also the power to set macro targets and decide on taxation policy and so forth. That is uh, is resident in the Department of Finance and. I, I think that will be one of the interesting things to watch as we come to this budget, how he chooses to, uh, you know, how he chooses to wield that power, how he chooses to weigh off those choices that we've been talking about, the dangers of, of you know, increasing public spending, of increasing investment, even though there are areas of society and economy that are crying out for that uh, for that. And investment. do you have any sense of that, though, as to what his, his take will be? My sense... Um, 
is that his own his own instincts are uh, conservative, but that but he is a politician and he knocks on doors and he hears stories of people not being able to get houses and he listens to his cabinet colleagues demanding spending in areas that have been neglected for uh, uh, for years and that were cut back severely during the years of austerity and that that struggle or that balancing act that we will see, I think, in 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 the government's budgetary and, and spending plans is, I think there's an extent to which that is almost internalised in, uh, in, in, in Pascal's own, uh, in Pascal's own. Who's and, and, when you say, and when you say he's conservative, That's not to say get I mean, the, right. other, the, other, the other part of any kind of ideological approach or any, any pragmatic approach to a conundrum of this sort is, you know, it's tax and spend. Um, is would he but be against? Because yeah. there's a, there's an implication. There's one way you could read Seamus Coffey's paper is you could say he's saying, well, if you're going to spend, uh, if you're going to lash out some money, well, then you may have to raise taxes because that would be the counter cyclical thing to do. Uh, but he's highly unlikely to raise any difficult taxes, thing for a politician to do now, isn't it? You know, to consider raising taxes when there's such a head of steam, and we saw it reflected in a poll in the Sunday Independent. Uh, on, on, on Sunday where people are uh, apparently, as, as the paper interpreted it anyway, looking for it, it was, reductions it was, it was in taxes. It was quite an interpretation, mind and you. This was really, no, was perhaps quite, it was, was quite a complex but, Yeah, but let us not forget that the main party of government ran on a, uh, ran on a platform of, uh, of abolishing the USC. So, and while that target has been stepped back from, there's still clearly a demand and an appetite for tax cuts. But not all, not all taxation is, is, is income Gale. tax. For, and so, for example, there has been some discussion no, but that's the most about, whether the, about whether the uh, the tax benefit which the tourism industry has received over the last few years, whether it was time to reverse that, which would have, uh, which would have I think, delivered about 500 million per, per annum back to the Exchequer. But that looks as if it's sliding that off the agenda. knocked on the head because with this budget, as with all other budgets, there are, you know... Uh, there are lobby groups which will be in, you know, to Mr. Donoghue and into every radio and television studio and newspaper office in the land, uh, seeking to make their uh, seeking so, to make their case. And in a time of a growing economy and relatively healthy public finances, it's a politically very difficult move for uh, for a minister for finance so to do to start raising I'm taxes. Listening to you, it sounds to me that you know we're looking at this new uh, duopoly at the top of government with Leo Varadkar and Pascal Donoghue, uh, young, fresh faces of Fine Gael, but essentially small C conservative politicians who may not be too dramatic in what they what they do over the next few months. Yeah, I suspect that maybe is is a reasonable read on it. I mean, Pascal Donoghue has often made the case that his formative political experience, he was elected in 2011 on that great wave of Fianna Gael support in general election that saw Fianna Fáil decimated and took place right at the, 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 the depths of national despair a couple of months after the a couple of months after the bailout and at a time when not alone had Ireland lost uh, substantial control over its own financial affairs, but there was a very real fear. This was the background of this election, a very, in, in 2011, a very real fear about the economic future of the country, whether it had a viable economic future and the sort of consequences that that would have on everybody in it. Now, Pascal Donoghue was elected 
to the Dáil uh, at that uh, at that election. He spent the next five years knocking on doors in Dublin Central, uh, justifying austerity to often uh, an often difficult audience. His constituency was reduced from a four-seater to a three-seater. He was scrapping for extra votes. And he describes that as his formative political experience, knocking on the doors, justifying austerity. And he says that his animating political philosophy in government is to avoid a repeat of that. Now, we can take him at his word for that and we can see what he does now that he's uh, Minister for Finance and Minister for Public Expenditure. But if we take him at his word, then he will not do the sort of things that Seamus Coffey, for one, is warning might lead to... To to go back to your parallel, he won't do the Charlie McCreevy when when I have it, I spend it. All indications are that he won't. Now, perhaps he will make different mistakes, of course, but I would be surprised if he makes those mistakes again. Right, well, the weeks will tick by and we'll know in the not-too-distant future, but let's enjoy the rest of the summer first, Pat. Thanks for coming in. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember, you can find me on Twitter or you can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com and you can always find this podcast on irishtimes.com also or on iTunes. If you are listening on iTunes, it is always helpful if you could give us a review or a star rating because it gets us to a wider audience. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.